Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. At Traditional Medicinals, we believe that nature knows best. That's why we use medicinal-grade herbs like echinacea to support your immune system, eucalyptus to help give you a breath of fresh air, and ginger to promote healthy digestion. Every which way we turn, Mother Nature is there to greet us with her amazing healing plants. Visit traditionalmedicinals.com and use code WELL20 to see what makes our teas so incredible. Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something, trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, My goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions, and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Yesterday was my one-year anniversary of the podcast, which I was just can't believe it, first of all, that a year has gone by. But I said this on stories. I'm so grateful to all of you. Thank you so much for listening. I never dreamed that so many people would be listening to me talk. But also, thank you for your support. Thank you for all your comments on Instagram and your messages and your emails and trusting me with some of your deepest, darkest questions. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate all of you. So thank you again. Before I talk about today's guest, I'd like to also remind you, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and review it as that helps me to help other women like you find the podcast. So it's really, really important that you do that and share it with your friends and family. Share my Instagram handle. It's not a crisis podcast. All of that is greatly, greatly appreciated. Also, I am working on live groups, so please be patient. Uh, I've just been slammed, but um, I will let you know as soon as that is available. I think I may do them through Livecast, so I'm just looking into that a little bit more. So today's guest, Lindsay Blount, she contacted me with her story, uh, I got a few months ago, and we got on the phone and talked about it. And, and it wasn't something I was, you know, really doing with the podcast, but I was blown away by her entire story, just absolutely fascinated. Um, and then we later did an Instagram live where Lindsay came on and talked about her story. I'm not sure how many of you watched that, but there was a huge response to it. And I know that many of you wanted to hear more. So I knew it was important to bring Lindsay onto the show to really talk about her story. And I also, I think, you know, part of my podcast is not just interviewing experts. I think hearing from real women in their forties with these life-changing events at a time in their life, when they're also in the midst of trying to figure out who they are and how they want to live this next chapter is a really important thing to listen to. Because I think that many of us are 
going through different experiences that are forming who we are right now. And at the same time, we're like, who the hell are we? So when you throw in Lindsay's story into the mix, it's pretty big shit show. But um, let, let me tell you a little bit about Lindsay. Uh, she has a lot of labels. She is a wife, a mom, a doctoral student, an assistant to a dean, a writer, and a photographer. Recently, she had her identity completely uprooted when she took a 23andMe DNA test during the pandemic and found out some shocking news. In the last year, Lindsay has taken a deep dive into identity and its meaning down to the root. She challenges everyone to consider identity as something that is not a fixed part of your being. Rather, it's something you can learn and relearn. Lindsay is currently writing her first book on identity shakeups, and she hopes her story will inspire everyone to rip out the roots of their own identity and start creating a more true and authentic one. Lindsay, welcome. I'm so happy we are finally doing this. Thank you so much. And I, I want to say happy anniversary on your podcast. I adore you. I'm such a big fan of this podcast. So thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. You've been such a great support. So I really appreciate it. All right. I don't even know where to begin with you. I was thinking about this. <laughs> I was thinking about this. We, we have a little bit about who you are, which is great. And by the way, I didn't I actually didn't know your background. So that's really interesting to me. But I think we almost just have to start with what the hell happened during this pandemic? What, what start with where this all began? Where was this, where did this identity shakeup start? Yeah. I, so it actually started when I was um, really young. I was 13. My parents had got divorced and my mom remarried and my stepfather told me that my, by, my dad was not my real dad. He said that I have a different dad. I immediately called my dad up and he said, that's not true. He's lying. And so I, I spent my teenage years not really knowing who my father is. I really wanted to believe my dad. Um, and then when I was 18, my mom told me that she used a donor to conceive me and that my stepfather was telling the truth. And I called my dad up and he said, nope, that's not true. They're lying to you. So I spent most of my life sort of not really knowing who I am, really questioning my identity. I wanted so badly to believe that my dad was my dad because I will tell you, he passed away seven years ago, but he was the most amazing man and father. And I just really wanted him to be my dad. So I believed him more than probably my mom or anybody else. But there was still sort of that seed that was planted in my mind. And then the pandemic hit <laughs> and we sort of all got forced into the stillness and we couldn't find ways to escape from our usual lives. We couldn't use our usual coping mechanisms. Like for me, my coping mechanism when I didn't want to think about things was to go to Target or to shop or to do those kinds of fun things. And when that was taken away, I had to sort of sit with my thoughts. And so I really started to think about I got to know the truth about who I am. It's important now because I have two little girls and this is their ancestry. This is their DNA. So I took a 23andMe test. And what happened there? <laughs> well, so <laughs> on May 16th, this past year in 2020, deep into the pandemic, I got a ding on my phone and 23andMe said, your results are ready. And I looked at the results and it said, I have six half siblings. Wow. Um, so I realized that my mom was telling the truth. I will say a few months before my dad passed away, we went for a walk and he did admit that he wasn't my biological father. But when I asked him again about the donor, he said, that's not true. Why do you think your father didn't want you to know that? Do you, have you ever thought about that? I'm sure you have. You know, I don't know. I, so 
he either didn't know that my mom used a donor. That could be a thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know the inner workings of their marriage or their demise of their marriage. And it's really none of my business to be honest about how their marriage ended. But I think my dad was a very proud, strong man and I was his little girl. And so to him, I don't think it mattered Mm -hmm. who a biological father was. I was his, I was his daughter. So I think maybe part of him just didn't want to admit it either. Right. Um, he admitted one thing. He admitted that he wasn't my biological father, but I don't think he was ready to to go that far. And then he passed away. Mm. Um, so we sort of took it to his grave. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry for that loss. That must have been yeah. really hard for you. Yeah. I was I was actually eight months pregnant with my first daughter when my father passed away. So uh. yeah. And it took me seven years to take the DNA test because I just felt like I didn't want to sort of tarnish his memory or I don't, betray I don't know. I just him, wanted maybe. to you him. betray yeah. him. Yeah. I didn't want to betray him. Um, but again, the pandemic just, it just uprooted, I think everyone's identity. I think we're all sort of realizing that we maybe don't want to go back to who we were before the pandemic. We don't want to go back to that sort of rat race life that a lot of us were living, especially moms. And now that we're sort of slowed down a little bit, I, I think we're all sort of questioning who we are. Even our physical identities have been sort of taken away. When we go out in public, we can't use our our usual way to communicate with our mouths and our faces because we have masks on. So we're all sort of struggling with our identities right now. This is so true, by the way. I think that even I find with myself, I, I, I definitely have changed a lot of things in my life since the pandemic started. And, and I find myself slipping back into ways that happened before the pandemic. And I'm like, no, I do not want to go back there. Yes. I do not want to get back into I don't want to be that person or live that kind of life. So I love that you just said that because many, many women are feeling this and uh, want to hold on to it. I think it's almost a little scary, the thought of normalcy, because we don't want full normalcy. Nobody wants full norm. No one's admitting it, but we don't want full normalcy. We want kind of to have this permission that we were given to slow down and, and figure out what we want for ourselves. I totally agree. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. And I will say I've, I've spoken to a lot of women, some of my friends and they, they've, they've become more creative since the pandemic. And and not even just in the arts, just creative with the way they handle their schedule or their marriages or their relationships with their friends and their children, because you had to get creative, right? So I think it's forced something very different in us. So yeah. So I think that's kind of what made me really, really start to focus on my identity down to the root and where I come from. And that's kind of what made me take the 23andMe test. Okay. So let's go back. You uh, get your 23andMe results. You see you have six half siblings. What was the first thought that went through your head? Uh, I had two. The first was either my biological father had a lot of fun in the 80s (laughs) 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 or that I'm donor conceived and my mom was telling the truth. And then my next thought was if she was telling the truth and I am donor conceived, I have, I have a lot of apologizing to do to her because I didn't believe her for a really long time. I honestly believe that she had an affair Mm -hmm. and I believe that my dad was telling the truth so that we we've had a, we could talk about this later, but we've had a lot of repairing to do in our relationship because of this. I'm sure. But so I emailed all six of those half siblings that showed up and one emailed me right back and we talked on the phone and she said, I don't know what, you know, but I'm donor conceived. You're donor conceived. We're all donor conceived. (laughs) She had the same story that my mom had been telling me all these years that my donor was um, a med student in Georgia in the early eighties. So 
I knew that this was real. This was actually happening. And then she said, but hold on, there's more, there's seven more half siblings on, on ancestry DNA. So we're at like 14, including me. And then since then we're now at 20 siblings, we've had more siblings pop up on DNA sites. Wow. So I know you can't give any details of your donor father, but can you explain a little bit more? You you said he, you know, there was a lot of research involved. Can you go a little bit into that and why there are so many siblings? Yeah. So a few days after we found each other, I found my siblings, they've actually, some of my siblings have known each other for a really long time. So when you use a donor, you get a donor ID. So some of my siblings had that donor ID. My mom did not have the donor ID. So they were able to connect on a website called Donor Sibling Registry. So they've known each other for about 10 years. So I'm sort of the newbie that came around. So we had a second cousin that popped up on the DNA sites and which would make that person the donor's first cousin. So we contacted her and we did her family tree and we figured out who the donor is through her through this first cousin. We found out that he is very prominent. He is very much in the public eye in his state. He's very Googleable. You can Google him and all sorts of things come up, um, which has helped us because we get, we've learned more about where we come from and our ancestry because he is so much in the public eye that we can find out more stuff about him. Um, we can watch videos of him. And so we can see kind of how he moves and a lot of us look like him. So I feel like we're sort of lucky in that aspect, but we sent him a letter and we actually sent him a packet. We had a cover letter. We're all very business type. We had a cover letter. And then we, some of us put little letters in there and included pictures of ourselves, pictures of our kids. And we waited a few months and we didn't hear anything back. And then three months later, he actually emailed me. He and I know the same people, oddly. We have uh, very similar contacts So he emailed me and he said, I understand what you and your colleagues are going through. So he called us colleagues, (laughs) Yeah, but he does not wish to be contacted further. And he did say he wants to be empathetic when he says he's not the man that we're looking for. But since then, we've done more research and we have DNA matched with more cousins on his mom and dad's side. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that he's our biological father. Wow. That's so wild. (laughs) Yeah. We also believe, we know that he was donating for at least 15 years from the age gap that we have right now in our siblings. So we believe that we're our sibling group is probably in the hundreds. Um, It would not be shocking if that happened. We get a new sibling about once a month now. It's starting, it's really, it's quite an uptick of siblings lately. I want to go, I want to go back into the siblings, but I first want you to explain why was he donating so frequently? What was going on there? Yeah. So in his previous jobs, not the one he's in now, but in his previous jobs, when he was in the seventies and eighties, he was a researcher and he was doing a lot of research on infertility. So it's very possible he could have donated every single day for 15 years. We're not really sure. And I, I use the word donating very loosely also, because in in the United States, people sell their sperm and eggs. They don't donate them. United States is one of the very few countries that actually allow the selling of gametes. But what I would say that he actually was donating because I don't believe he was getting paid for those quote donations. I think that he was using it for research. So we've been able to look through his published papers and really, really be able to find out more about who he is and his motivations. We are definitely, I think we're science experiments for him for the most part, where we were science experiments in the 70s and 80s. And 
unfortunately, DNA and the internet happened since then. So we've we're sort of science experiments that have come to life for him. And you actually told me once that, which I never knew this, that in the 70s and 80s, women who were infertile were told that mixing their, and correct me if I'm wrong, mixing their spouse's sperm with donated sperm sometimes helped to have a child. Is that, is that, is yeah. that right? So I, something along those lines. It wasn't lines. to help to have a child. It was helped to lie to the child. What? Um, so yeah. So they would mix their husband's sperm. Well, that's where I was off. Well, they wouldn't put the doctor's <laughs> right. They would mix husband's sperm with the donor sperms to um, be able to tell their kid. Cause there, again, there were no commercialized DNA tests then. So they could say, we don't know who your father, we think it could be your dad. It could be the donor. So they just said, we'll, we'll do that just so that you could tell your kid that it's your husband's, that it's oh, your husband's wow. child and not the donor's. I didn't realize and that. And it was a big hush hush. The, in this, and it's still, and sadly, for the most part, the United States also does anonymous donations still, unfortunately, which is a huge ethical violation because you're keeping 50% of somebody's biological identity and their ancestry and their medical information from them. And this generation, my generation is the first generation of donor conceived people. And we're voicing that it's, it's a basic human right to know who you are, where you come from. Anyway, so back in the seventies and eighties, women were still doing what their husbands were telling them to do. They were still doing what doctors told them to do. And, and the doctors were saying, it's a dirty little secret. Do not tell your child it's better for them not to know. And so our moms, and I, I can speak for my mom and probably most of my siblings' moms, they're really struggling with sort of having a coming out of their own. Their their friends and family are finding out, while we're finding out we're donor conceived, their friends and family are finding out that they used a donor. And it's almost like a shame thing for my, our moms. Um, so my heart kind of goes out to my mom and a lot of our moms for sort of having to go through this. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that was a time where women were, were kind of had to be hush hush about a lot of things, unfortunately. Yes. yes. Women didn't talk about their reproductive issues. No one was talking about miscarriages. No one was talking about donor conception, infertility issues. No, it, there was a lot of no shame one. involved with that. So when you used a donor back in the 70s and 80s, you had to sign a contract and your husband had to give permission and sign the contract also saying that he gives permission for you to use a donor. Mm. That's not the case anymore, thank God, yeah. but can you imagine having to get your husband's permission to do a medical procedure? It's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Among other things that you had to get your <laughs> husband's permission yes. for yeah. back then. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so in going into your, um, I want to talk a little bit about your siblings. I, I, I also want to just talk a little bit about your mom, if you're okay with that. Yeah. So how many of your siblings knew early on about this before, because first of all, by the way, your, your donor father, when all this technology came out, was probably like, Oh shit. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> what? I am sure. This sucks. Oh my God. I'm like, yeah. he, I mean, he obviously is a very smart man and in the medical profession. And I think him and all the donors, all the donors, the 70s and 80s well, I told you out. this story. This is so stupid. I mean, I can't, I'm embarrassed by how naive I was, but when I was in college, in New York City, which was very expensive, and my dad gave me a very small amount of money a month to to use in the city, and and you know you like to go out and get a beer and like whatever, but you also had to eat. So I one month completely ran out of money and was like, "What the hell am I going to do?" And I was looking through the Village Voice newspaper, and I saw an ad to donate your eggs, and I was like, 
I knew nothing about my body. I knew nothing about reproductive health. I didn't, I like, I had no idea what, how babies were made. (laughs) I was so, I was so dumb, (laughs) but I saw like $25,000 for, for your eggs. And I actually called and they talked to me on the phone. And and when they explained it to me, I was like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) they're still doing this. This is still something that they're targeting young college girls. They'll say you can make seven to $10,000 donating an egg and we'll fly you out. TikTok, sadly, it has become like a recruiting tool that these clinics are using to recruit 18, 19 year old girls and to make money. And they're not thinking about 18 years from now, there's going to be an adult, a human being knocking on their door, wondering why they did that and wanting to know who of they course. are. Of course. I mean, from. I was ni- yeah. I was 19 years old. You don't yeah. think you, you, yeah. everything is in that moment. Nothing is, you don't think about the future. No, um, no. So fortunately I was smart enough to, once I was educated, which I wouldn't have done without being educated, not do that. But anyway, it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. So how many of your siblings knew early? Like how, how did they all just find out when 23 and me came out or did they know whether some of them that knew from an early age, their parent, their mothers told them and they believed them or whatever, what, you know, what was the situation? Yeah. So some of my siblings, um, ha- came from single moms. Uh-huh. So they knew that they were donor conceived from the day they were born because they didn't have a dad. Um, so their moms were very truthful in how they were conceived. I would say we're, we're sort of a mixed bag. I think half of us knew I'm sort of in the middle because I knew, but I didn't really want to admit it. And then the newer, I will say the new siblings that are popping up recently did not know. And they found out they took a DNA test to learn about their ancestry. And then they found out they have 20 siblings. It's been interesting. We kind of, we do zoom meetings once a month and we've been really talking about it's, I don't want to say the word burden because we, I'm grateful for my siblings, but there is sort of like a responsibility that has been kind of put on us to first deliver this news to these people. They're like, where are you all coming from? And we have to tell them they're donor conceived and then help them through that. Mm-hmm. We've actually created a pamphlet. Oh my God. <laughs> with all of our, we created a Google doc with all of our, our, who we are. Cause imagine finding out you're donor conceived and that you have all these siblings and then having to learn their names, their families, because not only are there 20 of us, but there are 29 cousins. There's 29 kids. We all, we have 29 kids. There's a, there's That's 49 crazy. people to know. Wow. So it's a lot. So we created a little pamphlet. So when new siblings come up, we just say like, Hey, yes, your donor conceived. We don't tell them who the donor is yet. We sort of, we've been vetting people because, because he's so public. We we're kind of, we keep joking. There's going to be a rogue sibling that's going to pop up and want to go public with who our biological father is. So we sort of ease them into everything instead of just throwing everything at once because it's a lot to digest at once. Do you feel like in some ways you wish this didn't happen sometimes? Because I would imagine it is a burden in some way. You know. Yeah. I went through a few months of being really, really angry and felt like ignorance would have been bliss. I wish I didn't take the DNA test. I could have just kept pretending that my dad, there was a mix up. My dad's my dad, whatever I wanted to believe. But Then there's this other side that I hit the jackpot with my siblings. My siblings are creative, ridiculously successful, intelligent, just good, kind humans. They all have their shit together. Excuse my language, but they do. They're just so supportive and we're all supportive of each other. So had I not taken the test, I wouldn't have this amazing group of siblings now. It's a catch 22 because there are times where I'm just angry and I kind of want to call our biological father and say, 
the next sibling that pops up, you handle it. Yeah. You tell him what you've done. You tell this person, you know, why their donor conceived. It's a lot of and, work on top of all your other work. And it sort of like rips off a bandaid for all of us. We kind of go through that again, because we're going through it with that person to realize their donor conceived and what that means. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's intense, but we all, and then sometimes we're like, do we just take our names off these DNA sites? But then that's not fair to then like, what if we were the next sibling coming up and then we didn't have this group of amazing supportive people. So, right. It's a wild ride. I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Therapy has helped. But, I, I, st- I got a therapist in December, good. in late December. And it is, um, we were talking about that. Helped. I feel we like were talking about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I did. Yeah. I took your advice. And I, when my father passed away, I used a therapist and that that was amazingly helpful. Um, especially, I mean, eight months pregnant when your dad dies, that will throw you for a loop. So, yeah. So I I think that's been really helping me too, is getting through the anger and now I'm working through resentment. So that's the stage that I'm at right now. Yeah, No, you're going through the stages and that's, (laughs) you know, this is, um, you know, I don't know if you listened to my podcast on grief, but yeah, this, this is a grieving also, you know, and so you're, you're going through the stages of grief, which, which is understandable. What is the biggest realization about yourself that you have learned maybe from one of your siblings that did some, some, another sibling trigger something in you that you really didn't even know about yourself that came out? Yeah. So I've always been a creative. I always like to write. I have a master's in English literature. So I'm very much into like that sort of creative side, but I, I haven't always let that fly. I haven't let my creative flag fly. And then I met my siblings and there is a massive creative streak that runs through my siblings and finding out that I have a comic book writer as a sibling and a movie producer and a stage designer and just amazingly incredible, a PhD and like this, one of my siblings worked in human resources and she's incredible. We just have really incredible people. And I think it's almost given me a permission to allow myself to explore that side, that creative side of me that I've sort of always kind of suppressed. Mm-hmm. I've been suppressing that creative side with education. I'm, I'm getting a doctorate right now in higher ed, which I will tell you is the most least creative thing you can right. possibly do is write a dissertation. <laughs> um, I, and, and it's funny because now I'm like, I want to write a book now and, and I want it to be creative and I want but to Writing be... a book is creative. By the way, I, I, as a creative, started my master's in social work many years ago and I was like, ooh, this is not creative yes yes so it's I will say that I think that side has really and it's allowed me to open up just being open to new ways of being creative I, I picked up a camera and started taking pictures during the pandemic and I started a photography business and it's taking off and I would never have done that had I not met my siblings one of them is a photographer and she's been giving me a lot of great advice on how to use my camera and those kinds of things but yeah, I think, I think that, and then just, I mean, I think this comes with turning 40 also, but being okay in my skin and in my identity, that has definitely happened. Cause I think I've learned more about myself through my siblings. Even if my biological father doesn't want to talk to me and I can't find out who I am through him, I'm finding out it out through all of his children. That's amazing. By the way, you know that, I mean, some of us who have just one sibling and, you know, like I do, um, we can't even find out that much from that one sibling. You know, <laughs> I'm very different from my brother. We also, you know, we have some similarities, but we're also very different. Sometimes I'm like, are we, were we raised by the same parents? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, that's really incredible. Is there one sibling in particular that you have just found that you really have a lot in common with or are really connected to? Yeah, I think we, 
Yes. Um, there's definitely, there's a sister that she actually came to visit in December, which was amazing that I got to meet my sister at the airport. It was very odd to say I'm meeting my sister yeah. for the first time. Um, but she flew out from California and yeah, we, we sound the same. She's actually the first one that I talked to, um, when I got the results, but we sound exactly the same when we get really excited. We stumble over our words. Mm-hmm. We're both writers. We both, yeah, we're, we're basically this, we both parent the same. We're, we're carbon copies of each other. Really. She's, I just say she's a way skinnier version than I am. Cause she like runs marathons and I like to sit on the couch <laughs> and, and drink wine. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm not a marathon runner, That's amazing. But, yeah. but we're all very similar in a lot, in many different ways. We have a, we, we call her the baby. She's, we have a sibling who's 31 and she's our baby. She's the baby sibling. And she's me when I was 31. I can, I can see so much of that wild child kind of just living her life out loud. And I definitely was that way then before I got married and had kids and, you know, mm-hmm. had to be responsible and all that. Right. 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 <laughs> For family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, um, that time of life, which was kind of, yeah. kind of fun. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I did, um, I did my thesis on nature versus nurture and I, I, I studied mm. a lot about adoption and actually worked in adoption in college. And so I find this so fascinating because, you know, here you are a bunch of siblings raised by different parents. And yet the similarities between you obviously are the nature, but even the nurture part of it is kind of interesting too. Cause you know, and I know it's, it's fascinating to me. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on that subject, so I'm not going to go into it, but my, my, my thesis from college, but yeah, I've been asked a lot about what I think about the the quote, the scare quote, nature versus nurture debate. And I don't think it's a debate. Mm-hmm. I think that it's both. Right. I think it's both. I agree. And, and I, I am living proof that it's both. My dad, he was very out there, the life of the party, center of attention. And that's me. I, like, I'm not some, I'm not a wallflower. I get that from my dad that raised me. But learning all of these siblings, and I will say, knowing what I know about my biological father, I'm, I, I get a lot of things from him that I did not get from my dad that raised me, nor did I get from my mom or her entire side of the family. We're, I'm very determined. I'm very motivated. I'm very much um, like career oriented. I really want to like get to the top and none of my, no one in my family is like that. So that's a DNA thing. I would say now at this point, I think I'm, I think I'm 60% my biological father and 40% my mom at this point or 40% nurture and 60% nature now that I'm learning more and more about myself through my siblings and through what I know about my biological father. So I, I think it doesn't have to be a debate. I think it's both. I think it's both too. And that was actually my, that was my conclusion of my thesis. Um, and I think, I, I think when you write your book, I, you should really go into this and, and talk about not, not to give you advice on your future book, but (laughs) but as somebody who's curious about your story, and you'll be helping other women who may have been adopted. You know, it, it's it's the same situation. But I think it would be so interesting to, to hear specific examples of those things. Well, and I think it comes down to also identity. And that's one of the biggest things that I've really been working through and realizing through this whole entire process is that I used to think that identity is fixed. So my father was German and very German and his mom was pregnant and came over here from Germany in 1939 with him and with, and with my aunt who was five years old at the time, she came over on a boat. My grandmother was this most stubborn, but powerful and amazing woman who basically gave the middle finger to Germany because Hitler was ruling it and said, I don't want any part of this. And she moved to New York by herself and left my grandfather in Germany And I just always felt I am her, I am German, I am 
I believe that was a fixed part of who I am. And then a 23andMe test came back and told me I have 0% German in me and I'm 100% British told me that my biological father's family came here in the 1600s. Did not My family did not come here in the 1930s. I realize now that I, I learned how to be German. I, I learned that as part of my identity. It was never a fixed part of my identity. And I think we, we understand that we can change our identities. Like I was a flight attendant in my 20s, and now I'm in, I'm in academia. I think that we know that gender, we can change our gender as well. We're, that's, that's something that our our generation is realizing that that's not part of the fixed part of your identity. Your gender isn't, but I don't think people really think about it down to your root, down to your ancestors, down to the ones that came before you, that you could take a test and that can be completely uprooted, completely ripped out of your tree. And then I think that what's left is that you're realizing that it was never fixed or rooted to begin with. So I am still German. Maybe I'm not DNA German, but I still have that part of my grandmother in me because I learned how to do that. I I learned how to be German and that, or how to be my grandmother. You know, it's wild. Uh, My grandmother, both of my grandmothers died before I was born. And my mom was very close with her mother. And through my entire life, whether it's something as, as, silly as a color that I like or a style that I like or or that I like being out on a boat or whatever it is, my mom's eyes always bulge out of her head. And she's like, you are my mother. And I, and I have a lot in common with my mom, but I know that if my grandmother was alive today, like we would have been best friends. I, I, I sometimes feel a little disconnect in my own family. And, and it's interesting because I feel like I'm this other person that, which, which I'm also discovering in my like forties, I'm trying to like pull that person out. And, you know, whether it's something as dumb as like my style down to my beliefs and the way I'm raising my kids, whatever it is, but she, I mean, the, the, the looks that she has given me over the years about things that, that are so similar to her mom and not just personality traits. It's fascinating to me. And so I, you know, while you, you, you have that in you, 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 you know, you felt that from your grandmother and that is part of who you are. Yeah. And you learn it and you're learning, you're learning your grandmother right now. And you're learning that, that you're a lot like her and that you can learn and relearn that identity and you can choose to use that part of your identity. The more I hear about her, the more I want to incorporate her into my life. And I, and I wish I had her here for the permission because my mom was very different than her mom. And I think my daughter is very similar to my mom. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's really interesting as they get older, you you sort of see how generations skip. So in talking about moms, remind me again, what, uh, how old you were when your mother told you? I was about 18 when she told me that I was donor conceived. Okay. And your first reaction was what? I immediately called my dad right. and he said, that's not true. And then, and, and so then what happened I, with your mom? <laughs> and then I said, you're lying. And I didn't believe her. And every time we talked about it after that, she would get mad at me and we would get into an argument and I would say, see, you're getting mad at me. So you must be lying. Really. She was getting mad at me because I was accusing her of basically cheating on my dad instead of believing her. Well, I want to, I wanted to ask you, tell me when she sat you down to tell you this, how did she tell you? Well, we were probably in an argument, I'm sure. Cause I was, when I was 18, I was just a typical 18 year old that just wanted to be out of the house. And and I didn't get along with my stepfather. We never got along. He wasn't a very good man to me. So she told me that she used a donor. She gave me the the name of the doctor's office that she used in Florida. I called that doctor's office and they are, that doctor is now in a, uh, he runs an abortion clinic. So I was like, well, 
you're lying because the guy runs an abortion clinic. So how is he get your fertility doctor? I have since found out that he was actually a fertility doctor and ended up running a Planned Parenthood uh, clinic where he was doing abortions out of. That's an interesting switch for that doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I think sometimes you want so badly to believe something that you will see all the flaws and the wrongs in the truth so that you can continue to believe what you want to believe. And I so badly wanted my dad to be my dad. So I wasn't going to believe anything my mom said, and it just created a lot of arguments. And how, but how did it come up in an argument? She, you were fighting, and she was like, "Oh, by the way, you're a donor kid." <laughs> I mean, how, did yeah, I don't, I honestly don't remember. don't remember the exact the exact time. We had so many conversations where it ended up with her hanging up on me because she was she would get so frustrated with me because I'm like, I don't believe you. You're lying. This is not real. Yeah, um, we probably so. didn't. It, the way it was told to you should have been done differently. <laughs> no. Yeah. And when I, I mean, when I was 13 and my stepfather told me my dad's not my real dad, we were in a massive argument when he told me that. So it didn't come out in a very beautiful, peaceful way that some of my siblings, actually their parents sat them down when yeah. they were 13. And it was like a very nice way to tell them. I had a very traumatic way of, very, of t- I was about to told. say very traumatic. I mean, and, it was and, very traumatic, and that yeah. must've scarred you for many years, even leading up to this point where you really found out the truth. I mean, that's, that's scary. Yeah, it is. And it, it forced me to sort of, I mean, there were times where I'm like, maybe they're telling the truth. And I would look in strangers faces and think like, I wonder if that guy's my dad. There's, there's one time in particular, I was, I was 17. I I went to high school in New Jersey. We went to New York city on a field trip and we went into the New York city public library and I walked in and there was a man standing there and I swore he was my biological father. Oh my God. This man was probably like, why is this 17 year old staring <laughs> at me? But I'm like, I swear it's him. And then a few years later, I was a flight attendant A man walked on the plane, sat down in first class. And I'm like, Oh my God, he looks like me. I wonder if he's my father. So as odd as that is to look in people's faces and try to find out who he is. Yeah. I, I definitely went back and forth. And then when I when I Googled who I now know to be my biological father and saw his face, I was like, Oh my God, that's him. <laughs> of course that's my biological and father. And he looks, so. he, he looks like you. So we don't actually look like, but my daughter and him look stupidly alike. Oh, wow. um, one of my siblings looks like they could be, it's disturbing how much she looks like her biological father. Wow. Um, yeah. A lot of my siblings and I look alike. A lot of my kids look like my siblings. It's it, the cousins all look alike. Yeah. So when you <laughs> found out on 23andMe and you found out this information, did you go back to your mom and have a conversation? Yes. I called her after I, so I spent a day on the phone with my siblings. I think I talked to three sisters that day. Um, my husband came home. He, when I found out he was, he took the girls to horseback riding and he came home and I'm like, um, I have like 14 siblings. Can I have the day off from being a parent and a human being right now? Yeah. (laughs) Um, so he took the kids and I sort of spent the day outside on the phone. Um, and then I called my mom and I told her, I said, okay, you were right. I was wrong. I'm donor conceived. And she's like, yeah, I know you are. I've been telling you this for years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then when we found out who the father was, her first reaction was, I can't believe I had a baby with that guy. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh my God, my mom and my dad have never met. How weird is that so to say? Weird. <laughs> yeah. So weird. Yeah. So, so you were, I, I would imagine you had a lot of repair work to do between the two of you. Oh yeah. 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 And I also, which was, by so the way, mom, is not your fault. You know, it's No. Like, and it's not hers <laughs> no, either. No, it's not hers honestly. either. I don't blame her yeah. either. My mom and my stepdad had a baby when I was 16. So I, I have a sister also with that I share with my mom and it's just been her and I, you know, this whole time she's 23 now. So 
she also was sort of struggling with having to share me with all these other siblings, having to share her nieces with all these other siblings. So I will say the three of us, we've had a lot of conversations, a lot of hard conversations. My mom didn't want me to tell anybody for the first five months after finding out. She's like begging me not to tell anyone um, because she had to, she had to deal with having to tell her friends and family that she's lied to them all these years. And she had to get over the shame of that, which there is no shame, which I've tried to tell her, but she worked through it. And we've, again, we've had a lot of hard conversations and we are at a way better place than I think we've ever have been. My mom, my sister and I, we talk daily now, which is, it's just way better. So when I say like, I wish, I wish I could go back and never take the DNA test, but now I'm, I have these amazing siblings and my mom and my sister and I are so much closer I'm grateful that I took the test. Yeah. 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 Well, that, yeah. that's so great to hear. By the way, yeah. I have found a few um, whoopsies in my family, a few cousins that were not accounted for yeah. <laughs> through yeah. 23andMe. So if you get on there, you might, things might come out about some of your uncles or uh, cousins. <laughs> if, and if anyone, any of your listeners take a test, they could be my sibling. Right. I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> still waiting I for mean, a sibling I, to listen to a podcast. I hate to admit this, but there's a part of me that's a little jealous of you because <laughs> I, I like, I, I keep waiting too. I'm like, maybe. And I was joking with my yeah. dad one day. I'm like, come on, dad, just tell me. Like, do you think, just do you think there was like, do you think there's one floating around somewhere? He's like, no, Doran, there's not. Like, ah. Well, I will say right after I took the test, I made my husband take one. Cause I'm like, Oh God, please tell me we're not related. Right. Like, please tell me your parents weren't lying and that you were, and he has the most boring results that anybody could ever have. So we're the total, Oh, I make fun of him all the time for that. We're total opposite results here. Mine but. are really boring too. <laughs> yeah. For a minute, it's okay to be boring. For a minute. I, I, when I first took it, it told me I was like, five percent spanish and i was like oh, oh that's exciting i never knew that because i have i have olive skin i have dark skin and no one knows where it came from but it went away mm-hmm. so i don't yeah it goes away with people that jo- more people that join on yeah it, yeah your your dna will change a little bit so yeah well not your dna but your ancestry right results so i guess that's yeah. not true um yeah what <laughs> in conclusion i would love for you tell me what you would say to other women about identity in our forties in general, what, what, what advice, what words of wisdom can you give us as you're going through this process from what you've learned? Yeah. I think, especially if you're just struggling with identity, just in this last year, I mean, we're, we're literally coming up on one year of of being in a pandemic. And I can, I, I feel confident in saying that nobody is who they were a year ago. And so what that means is that who you were a year ago was never part of your fixed part of your identity. It wasn't who you are anyway. So you have permission to be whoever you want to be. You can change down to your root. uh, My daughters are really into Harry Potter right now. Mm -hmm. So I joke that, um, and if you've watched Harry Potter, there's the mandrake root when you rip it out, it screams. Mm -hmm. Like my tree is full of mandrake roots. They like every time I rip one out, it screams, but that's okay because I have learned that on the other side of ripping all these roots out and creating a new tree that has totally different branches, my life is exponentially better than it ever has been. I'm way more open to people and ideas and things. And I think I love, I love the title of your podcast. It's not a crisis because it doesn't have to be a crisis. I, I can't remember who said this, so I'm not going to say that this is my words, but I really believe that this has not happened to me. This has happened for me. So I think if you're going through anything that has to do with identity, becoming a mom is the biggest identity crisis I think I have ever been through Mm -hmm. 10 times worse than, than this sort of identity crisis now. And it doesn't have to be a crisis. You can rip out 
the root, the tag, the label, whatever you've got that you've, that someone else has put on you or you've put on yourself and just choose a different path. And, and while it might be really yucky and mucky in the middle of it, like I said, I've, I've seen a therapist and that's okay to do that. You might feel angry sometimes on the other side of it. There's the most beautiful life on the other side of it. Yes. Um, and that's been super helpful for me. To, I love that. To really say, thank you yeah. for saying that. I mean, and that, that's the point of my podcast, you know, it, let, let's try to pull the beauty and the positivity from, from these experiences, even if it means years of working on ourselves to get to that point, but we're doing it now. And hopefully that means that for the rest of our lives, we're able to really live our lives in a content and positive way. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be great, but I think looking at it that way is really important. And I've been reminding myself, what if it doesn't have to be hard? Yeah. (laughs) What if this just doesn't have to be as hard as I'm making it out to be? Because I've, and I also, I have a lot, I mean, I have my siblings that I check in with. I also have a best friend that I will call and she will be very real with me. She'll say, Whoa, you're jumping off the deep end friend. Let's pull you back in. And I think having those real women in your life that can really be honest with you, that's helped immensely too. And she will say to me, what if it's not that bad? What if it's not that hard? What if like, screw it. Let's just, let's just create something different. (laughs) Mm, What a good friend to have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, yeah. thank you so yeah. much for sharing your story. I'm going to be doing more of these, actually. I spoke with someone the other day who has another amazing story. And uh, I, I think it's important for women our age to listen to each other, not just, as I said in the beginning, not just listen to experts, because I think that um, we need to... The beautiful thing I have found about my 40s is women are starting to come together and support each other as and, and no longer dragging each other down like we maybe did in our 20s and 30s. Um, And it's because we don't care anymore. And the insecurity isn't there anymore. And so women are really starting to support each other. And that's one of my favorite things about being in my 40s. It's just so wonderful. Unfortunately, I wish it happened sooner than this, but I guess this is when it begins. Yeah. And I will say, Doran, thank you because we've had conversations offline and I've, I've like messaged you something and you were very real with me. And you even messaged back and said, Oh, I hope that didn't come across as rude. And I was like, no, that taking a stand for me as a friend or as just a woman is not a rude thing to do. Taking a stand in a loving way is it's only going to help us grow. Right. So I think there's a difference between taking a stand and then just being mean to somebody, right? Or, you know, right. So, yeah, yeah. Being honest and, and being honest and just taking a stand for someone. Yeah. The best thing, the important. best thing I ever learned was finding a therapist after many years that called me out on my shit. You know? yes. I, I was doing it wrong for so long. I was with the therapist that told me everything I wanted to hear and how wonderful mm-hmm. I was and how everyone in my life was wrong and I was right. And, uh, you yeah. know, I did that for years and loved it. Then I, I, I realized I was going nowhere. So I, I learned from that experience that uh, with my friends, if they're open to it or any, even anybody, you know, gently calling somebody out on something is is to me, so much better, even if it's harder than having somebody dance around and uh, not tell you the truth. So I appreciate that you appreciated that. And I I appreciate that we now have this friendship and you are so amazing. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do with your life and your newfound, you know, I I don't want to say, what are you, your newfound, I don't want to say personality. I I was going to say personality, but that's not what I meant to say. (laughs) Your newfound identity. Yeah. (laughs) 
thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. You're amazing. And I'm super grateful for you. Oh, you're welcome. And if anybody has any questions as a follow-up to this podcast, I know Lindsay would be happy to answer them and you can just message me or email me. It's not a crisis at Gmail. And uh, maybe there will be somebody else that's listening that is a donor. Actually, I met somebody on Clubhouse who knew who knew you, but that, that's we could talk about that offline. Huh. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thank you everyone. Uh, and I have some amazing shows coming up, so I hope that you are subscribed on my website so that you get a newsletter, uh, that will give you what show is coming up next and obviously pay attention to Instagram and all the silliness that's on there. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast. And please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember it's not a crisis. At Traditional Medicinals, we look to Mother Nature for all her healing gifts. We believe that plants can do some pretty amazing things. That's why we use medicinal-grade herbs like echinacea, eucalyptus, and ginger in our teas to help soothe and support your body naturally. Every which way we turn, Mother Nature is there to remind us that she's got our back. Visit TraditionalMedicinals.com and use code WELL20 to see what makes our teas so incredible.